And here we are going to be continuing our way through the Gospel of John. We find ourselves in the midst of the seventh chapter. And as we saw last week, Jesus has gone down to Jerusalem to the feast of booze. Now, at this point, Jesus has already faced death threats, ridicule, and yet, as we heard last week, he's not intimidated by any of it. He continues on his way, on the path that the Father has set for him. And already in the Gospel of John, we've seen many trying to square away who is this Jesus, right? Some have marveled at him. Some have sought to kill him. Some, as we heard last week, uh, think that he must have a demon. This morning, um, we're going to see our passage kind of confront directly, in, in some way or another, this question of who is this Jesus. And everybody in our passage this morning has opinions about him, and we want to hear what Jesus has to say about who he is. Now, we have a long passage before us. I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work our way through it and read it as we go. But let me pray for us as we get started this morning. Oh, Father... We thank you for your word, and we ask today that through the work of your spirit that you would feed us. Feed us as we hear, we pray the truth about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us this day to know him more fully, more completely, and we pray this all in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as we get started, has there ever been that person in your life that you just couldn't quite figure out, you know? Um, and maybe you, you think you've got them figured out, but then you find out that you don't have them figured out. I remember Mr. Helmy, ninth grade. We go into uh, first day, first day of school. He was my homeroom teacher, and this meant we were stuck with him for four years because they followed you through. And he was a new to teaching at our school, and it was this grumpy old man sitting behind a desk. And we were like, oh no, what have we gotten ourselves into? Um, we, we thought immediately we knew who this guy was. We had our opinions of, of who he was, and we were right. He was a grumpy old man. But most of us, I would say, in our class, we, we grew to love Mr. Helmy in deep ways. And he was like a trusted grandfather to many of us. Um, as we got to know him, we found out who he really was, not just what our immediate opinions of him was. In our, our passage this morning, we have many people trying to figure out who is this Jesus. And we're also going to hear from Jesus telling us, sharing with us some more as we've been learning through John and we'll continue to learn as he's continuing to share more and more of who he really is. So let's start verse 25 before us this morning. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They're trying to figure out, who is this guy? And they're thinking, well, the authorities haven't thrown him in jail. Maybe he really is the Christ. But they quickly come to their senses, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. You see, they had this idea in that day, it seems among many, that the Messiah would like come on the scene in a dramatic way, and when he came on the scene, he would bring suddenly and dramatically bring redemption into the world, that, that he would bring his royal throne into the world and begin to rule, and it would be obvious. And so they're thinking, well, this isn't obvious. We wouldn't be sitting here wondering, is he or is he not? If he was truly the Messiah, we would know 
immediately, so they discount him. Now, Jesus, in a way, responds to them, doesn't he? Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. You, you, you know me, you, you think, at least, you know me. You think you know where I'm from. You think you know that I'm from Galilee, and as we're going to find out later in the passage, they get that wrong, right? But he goes on to say, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him. He sent me. He tells them who he is. He is the one, whether they believe it or not, he is the one who has been sent by the Father. And in a way, they need to understand, and he's trying to find, and, and your belief in him, he's saying to them, your belief in me doesn't affect whether or not it's true. What I'm telling you is true. Because he who sent me is true. Now, what Jesus says here would have been a direct affront at them, right? Would have been a direct attack on them because he he says, you don't know him who sent me. And they prided themselves in what? They prided themselves in knowing the God of Scripture. And what does he say? "You, you 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 don't really know him. They think they know him, but they don't really know him. They've formed their opinions about who this God is, but they've gotten some things wrong. They don't know his Father as well as they think they do. Too often, I think this is us, right? We, we, we look within for truth. We, we think we're the ones who get to decide what is true. You know, we, we get to decide based on our, our own judgments, right? Our own feelings, our own inclinations. We get to decide who this person really is. And Jesus says, I still am who I am regardless of what you think. I'm the one sent from the Father. I've come forth into this world and I am, as we're going to hear later on in the Gospel of John, the truth, the real truth. And who he is doesn't change one iota based on people's perceptions of him, opinions of him, though the opinions obviously are rampant in our, our passage. Now, now people seem to be kind of offended by what he says, maybe by questioning their knowledge of the Father. So what do they do? Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him. And then we read something very strange. And we actually see it quite a few times in John. Let the strangeness of it like percolate a little bit in your heart, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. What does that look like? Maybe like Obi-Wan Kenobi. These are not the droids you are looking for, right? The stormtrooper saying, these are not the droids we are looking for. I mean, is this some Jedi mind trick? No, it's not a Jedi mind trick. But there's something going on here, right? People are seeking to arrest him, and yet somehow or another, they're incapable of doing so. Man, do I wish I knew what that looked like. The gospel doesn't tell us the how, but it does tell us the why, right? And what is the why? The why is because his hour had not yet come. It's, it's not yet time for him to go on. And so some seek to arrest him, but others have a different opinion. What do they do? Verse 31, yet many of the people, they believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? 
And so we have some people who seem to have some belief in him. Now let's not get too excited about them. This belief seems to somehow have a basis in signs. And, and as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, people who base their faith on signs, it's usually kind of shaded in a negative light. In fact, even their question, the, the, the fact that they are wondering kind of exposes their hearts, that maybe their, this belief doesn't go very deep, that maybe this deep, that this, this faith is, is not going to persevere until the end. In fact, this, it kind of exposes some of the thinking in that time is that they weren't necessarily expecting that the Messiah was going to do a bunch of miracles whenever he comes. Now, when the great prophet comes, they were expecting the great prophet to do a bunch of miracles like Moses. But they distinguish these things. They, they kind of separate them out. They were expecting two different ones. We'll see that a little bit more in our passage later on. But some people, they ex- begin to express some sort of belief in him. And what does this cause? Verse 32, then the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they sent officers to arrest him. They, they see that he's beginning to attract some people. People are, at least to some degree or another, beginning to believe in him. And what do they think? we got to put a stop to this. We can't let this be. So they hop into action. They send officers to go arrest Jesus. And then, like any good story, the scene suddenly shifts. You know, you know like you're reading a really good book. And, and you're watching the action. The action is sucking you in. Your hero is suddenly in trouble. And then... The chapter ends, and you flip the page, and suddenly you're like in a whole different scene. It's like, no, I wanted to find out what's going to happen to my hero, and it's kind of like that here. You're, we, we see this scene of them moving forward with arresting Jesus, and then suddenly the scene shifts, and we're over here with Jesus, and, and Jesus is, is teaching. And he's teaching in the context of these guards trying to find him, in the context of people thinking more and more they're figuring him out developing their opinions on him. And what does Jesus show in the words that we're about to read? He shows his total control over the whole situation. He will go where he wants, when he wants. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is saying it will not be because he's taken by force but it will be by his own will, by the will of his Father, the one to whom he is returning. Now this return that he talks about, it's going to take an unexpected path, isn't it? A path that in fact will seem quite tragic. A path that takes him to where? The cross. That the, the cross is the route to where he is going. Later on in the Gospel of John, when his hour has come, he's going to say this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What's the pathway to that glory for Jesus? It's through the cross. No one knows where he is going. No one can understand this incredible path that he is on. And in fact, the people who are hearing him, they're confused. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. What, is, what does Jesus mean 
It's like they think he's playing some sort of game of like hide and seek or something with them. You know, that, that he knows that, that, that people are being sent out to arrest him. And so what is he going to do? He's going to go run away and he's going to go hide. He's going to somehow escape his impending rest. And so they ask, where is he going to go? Is, is he going to go where many of the Jews have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire at this point? Is he going to go to them? Is he going to teach them? And is he going to teach the, the Gentiles there as well, the Gentile Greeks? Is that where he's going? And yes, he will go there, but he's going to go there not on his own two feet. He's going to go there through his people, right? After Pentecost, he is going to go. But they, they, they don't understand him. They can't comprehend it. But Jesus is trying to tell them who he is. He says, I am the one who has come from the Father. I'm the one who's going to return to the Father. I am the one who knows the Father and knows the true truth. Do you, do you know him? His people are left confused, aren't they? So Jesus tells them a bit of who he is, the one who is from the Father, the one who will return to the Father. Now, while we're still awaiting kind of this resolution of this attempted arrest, Jesus suddenly starts speaking about water. Water, something we desperately all need, right? We, we can't live without water. I'm reminded of Tom Hanks in that movie, Castaway, you remember when he gets totally dehydrated, and what is he doing? He's like licking up the water like off of leaves, because he's so desperately thirsty and can't find water, and he, he goes around with the leaves and trying to pour them into a coconut, the little bit of, you know, just so that he can get water, because why? Because we can't live without it. We, we, we so need water, or we cannot live. And so, as Jesus speaks these next words that we're about to hear, we need to be reminded of what he is speaking about. He is speaking into a world that is dehydrated. A world that is dehydrated, that desperately needs spiritual hydration, right? Spiritual hydration that only he can bring. And so I want to just get us thinking a little bit this morning. Do you, do you know your need? Are you thirsty? You know lacking in your life. You have worries and concerns that take you all over the place. Do you, do you pursue all of these other things hoping that they're going to somehow quench your thirst and you taste of them and maybe for a moment they taste good? For a moment you think maybe this thing is going to satisfy me? And then you're parched yet again. And maybe you go back to it and you go back to it and you find that it even less and less makes you feel for a moment as though it's quenched your thirst. Oh, do you run all over the place looking, looking for that which Jesus is going to tell us this morning can only be found in him. Do you run all over the place too? On the last day of the feast, of the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this might sound a little strange. Like, why does Jesus suddenly start talking about water? It seems like it's just out of the blue. But, in fact, if, if you were there and you were in Jerusalem this day, it would make sense because there's a lot of stuff with water going on in this, this Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths, or sometimes called Feast of Tabernacles, Right? Um, one of the three great pilgrimages 
where all the Jewish people would go down to Jerusalem for the year. This is one at the end of the year. It's at the time of the harvest. Okay? And they would build booths or tents or whatever to live in, to remember what? Remember their time in the wilderness, right? And be reminded of what? How, how, how Yahweh had provided for them when they were in the wilderness. And so they come together and they do this at, at, at the end of harvest time. And it's a reminder not just of how God cared for them back then, but also what? How God is caring for them right then. How he had provided the rains and everything that they needed so that they had the crops that they had that year. It's a reminder of God's provision then and provision now. And, and during this, each morning, there would be a procession that would take them from the, the pool of Siloam where they would scoop up some water and they would begin to process down to the temple. On the way, singing psalms, the trumpets would be sounding. they do this each day of the feast. And then they would take that water and they would pour it. Pour it at the base of the altar. Why? Because they were remembering the way that God had provided for them and how he had provided what for them in the wilderness. How he had provided water for them. How he had provided water from the rock then. And how he had provided water that year. Watering their crops so that they had the harvest that they did. But we hear about all of this. The, the celebration wasn't all about back then and right then how God was providing for them. It was also looking forward to a provision for them in the future. In fact, some of the, the Jewish rabbis had, had written about this and what this meant, this, what they were doing with this water. And they, they asked the question, why this water? Why, why were they doing this with water? And they basically say it was all to point forward also. It was to point forward to the pouring out of the Spirit on the last day. They were looking forward to the pouring out of the Spirit on the last day, much as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 44, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams of the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon you, your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. There was this, this expectation, not of just of His provision in the past, but He was going to provide for them in the future, and that that provision was going to be the pouring out of the Spirit, which, as we continue on with the passage, helps this to just come alive for us. So let's get back to the point. So Jesus, here he is. It's the last day of the feast. It's the pinnacle of the feast. And he stands up, and he doesn't just stand up, and he doesn't just start talking. Our passage in verse 37, what does it say? He cries out. Cried out like the prophets of old. And what does he say? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. Do you understand that this is kind of a provocative statement on this day? Do you understand how provocative this is? They've just poured out this water. They've been reminded of who the provider is and, and what his provision is. And what does Jesus stand up and he say? He says, come to me and drink. Much like he had said to the woman in Samaria, you remember? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now what he said then privately, what does he do now? He says publicly. And he says on this day that just kind of amplifies and explodes the meaning of what he's talking about. About the provision of water. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, I am the provision. But I'm not only the provision. I'm also the provider. I'm the rock from which the water flows. 
What he's saying is astounding. And he continues on, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not only will you not be thirsty if you drink from him, but what does he say? If you believe in him, if Jesus is the object of your faith, if he is the one that you trust in and cling to, what does he say? Out of his heart, literally out of his belly, like out of that, 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 that nourishing place in one's body. Out of that place will what? Flow living water. Rivers of living water. Now, let's make sure we understand here what he's saying. Who is this that these rivers are flowing from? These, this river is flowing from whoever believes in Jesus. Do you see? To the one who believes in Jesus, something incredible happens. You go and you drink from him, and then water begins to gush out of your heart, nourishing your whole self. I love the way that John Calvin puts it. He says this. He does not say that on the first day, believers are so satisfied with Christ that ever afterwards they, they neither hunger nor thirst. Important for us to understand. Understand the good news of that. That this doesn't mean that suddenly you're totally satiated and you'll never have a thirst again. That's not what's being said here. But on the contrary, the enjoyment of Christ kindles a new desire of Him. But the meaning is that the Holy Spirit is like a living and continually flowing fountain in the believer. You hear that? In the believer. If you believe in Christ, you have what flowing inside of you? But a river of living water. I'm so thankful that John kind of gives us some explanatory remarks here to kind of help us understand a little bit more, make sure we've connected all the dots of what Jesus is saying. What does he say? Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John, help us to understand, what, what is it that Jesus meant? What was he talking about? Jesus was using water then as, as this metaphorical language to, to tell us about what? This gift of the Spirit. Remember, that's part of what this Feast of Booths, that's part of what they were looking forward to with this pouring out of water, this longing, this looking forward to that day, that last day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon His people. Now, John says something interesting here that we can't ignore. He says that Holy Spirit had not yet been given. We need to make sure we understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit somehow didn't exist before this moment, okay? It doesn't mean that he hasn't been at work, that he hasn't always been eternally. He's part of the Trinity, right? He is the... Not that he hadn't been at work in the Old Testament saints, and certainly not that he wasn't currently at work in Jesus' life. Remember, he is Jesus' constant companion every step of the way. What is he talking about? John and Jesus, what are they pointing to? They're pointing to that hope, I think, that Moses had. That we read about in Numbers, would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Looking forward to that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that outpouring would not come until when? After, after Jesus' ascension. In fact, Jesus talks about this later in John. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And he's going to send him when on that day of Pentecost, where he comes to all believers. And, and when does Holy Spirit come to you? But on that day in which you first believe, since we live on this side of Pentecost. And so the promise here is of the Holy Spirit poured out on believers so that they might be filled up with, with living river of water, right? And so that they will overflow in newness of life that is found in Jesus. You see, in coming to Jesus, Jesus promises a river inside of you that will never dry up. Now, what does that practically mean? Now, we could talk about a lot of different things, but I just want to think about one. And to help us out, I want to read a little bit from a Dutch theologian, because that's always helpful, right? Herman Ritterboss says this. The abundance of the gifts of the Spirit referred to here does not mean that the believer will be transformed from a struggling faith to a purely triumphant faith. Sounds like he was reading Calvin, maybe. Um, saying pretty much the same thing about the same passage. But, here, get this. That the believer will become a participant by the Spirit in the glorification of Christ. That the Holy Spirit comes to the believer and connects us with what? Our glorified Christ. We're connected to Him. We're, we're bound and united to Him. That the believer, he goes on to say, will drink from a spring whose fullness for everyone who believes will never be exhausted. That is, that because of the work of Jesus, the Spirit will, will be given to us. And we can continually drink then by the Spirit. We can continually drink from the work of Christ, from His life, from His death, from His resurrection, from His ascension. As we await His coming again in glory, this is a river that is to be drunk from, not just on like a high feast day of the year. Not just like during a season, you know, like we are right now in a Christmas season where we might drink more from what God has to give us through the Spirit. Or just drinking from it on Sundays when we gather together. No, this is a river that, that flows in you all the time if you're a believer. And we got to question ourselves, are we, do we drink from this river or not? Fittingly, at this time of the year, I'm... Reminded of Paul's words, he says this, When the fullness of time had got come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was sent forth. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, right? Jesus sent forth. But not just sent forth to be a cute little baby. Sent forth to redeem his people. And what comes on the other side of that? if He has redeemed you, if you have believed in Him, you're adopted as a son. And what does Paul go on to say? And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit. Sent the Spirit. This, this living river of water in you that has spent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, what is, what, what is Holy Spirit doing? Reminding you constantly. 
that what? You're a child of God. That if you're in Christ, if you believed in Him, you're one of His. And this river is constantly testifying to us of the truth of that. The Spirit constantly testifying to us, reminding us daily and constantly of the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, if you've believed in Jesus, you've been given the Spirit. And out of your heart, out of your heart flows the living water that nourishes you. Who does Jesus say that he is? I am the one that quenches thirst of all who believe in me. I do so by giving my spirit. And understand what he's saying on this day, this feast, this feast of booths, by standing up, by crying out, he's saying, this is all, it's all about me. It's really about me. I am both the provision and the provider. I am the rock from which the water flows. Now, how do the people react? When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And we see all the people's opinions about who Jesus is. Remember, their opinions don't change the truth. But they all have their opinions. Some say he's the prophet. What prophet is this? This is the prophet that, that, that Moses hoped for when he said in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. And so they're, they're looking for this prophet that's going to come on the last day. And so some of them think he's the prophet. But other people say, no, maybe he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's going to come and, and sit on David's throne forever and rule and reign and bring his kingdom. Maybe he's the prophet. Maybe he's the Christ. Understand that they didn't necessarily, all the Jewish people, they didn't necessarily connect these things. They didn't understand that in one person was going to come the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king. And some people, as they're evaluating, they, they say, well, no, there's no way he can't be. Because why? He's from Galilee. And what are they exposing here? There's great irony here, right? They think they know him. They think they have him figured out. And they think they've figured out the way that he can't be the, the Messiah, that he can't be the great prophet, and that's because he's from Galilee. And of course, what do they not know? They don't know him very well. They don't know his birth narrative, do they? They don't know that he is actually from Bethlehem, the, the, the place that it was expected that the Messiah was going to come from. So everybody has their opinions about him. And it causes what? Verse 43. We see it causes division. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But again, we read those words. But, 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 nobody, <laughs> but nobody laid hands on him. Everybody's divided about who he is. But his hour has not yet come. And so at this point that we kind of turn to that chapter that we finally find out what, what, what's happening with the, you know, the, the attempt to, by the officials to arrest Jesus, verse 45, 
The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you bring him? Why didn't you bring him? And the officers said, no one ever spoke to us like this man. And maybe here we get our greatest picture of how it is that like people keep trying to arrest him and like they're just not capable of doing it, whatever that looks like. And here, what does it look like? It's like they go to arrest him and they just hear him speaking. And they can't do it. Oh, the power of the words of Jesus. And they're left in awe. Nobody speaks like this man. Now again, it doesn't mean that they've embraced him by faith. But at the very least, their words, maybe their words say far more than they thought they did by saying it. Because truly, nobody has ever spoken like this man. Now the Pharisees, they get a little upset. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed, what are they saying? No, you should listen to us. We are the religious authorities. What are you doing going and and listening to this Jesus and being sucked in by it? No, we are the authorities. That crowd's not the authority. Jesus is not the authority. We are the authorities. We're the ones who know the truth. We decide what is true. It's our opinion that matters, they say. Yet we're going to find out as we go on in John that some of these very same people, what begins to happen to some at least, John chapter 12, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now, it's into this that maybe one of those that's being spoken about in John 12 suddenly steps back onto the scene. Somebody we haven't seen for a few chapters of the the Gospel of John you think is totally disappeared. But verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to them before, who had gone to him before, gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Suddenly Nicodemus appears again out of nowhere. And when we last left Nicodemus, be reminded Jesus was chastising him, right? Because he claimed to be a teacher, yet he did not understand and know the need of the new birth. Remember Jesus' words, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Now, what does Nicodemus do? Nicodemus raises his hand. Excuse me. That's kind of almost the voice I hear. I don't know why. Uh, Can I, like a lawyer, I need to raise a procedural question. You know, he's like a good Presbyterian. Nobody gets that. A couple of elders might, but anyway. He raises a procedural question. It's not... We don't hear here that suddenly he's believed in Jesus. He's not defending Jesus here. But at the same time, we must wonder, why does he raise this question? Has he been reflecting on Jesus' words? Has change begun to come into his life in some way or another? Is he going to be one of those by, by John 12 who are going to be believing but maybe hiding a bit? I wish John told us, but he doesn't. But how do the 
officials respond? How do, how do the Pharisees and all, how do they respond? They replied, verse 52. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arise from Galilee. How do they shut him down? They hurl an insult at him. You must be from Galilee. Are you from there too? And so they try to shut him down. So this morning, we see Jesus say who he is. The one who has been sent from the Father. Who has come from the Father to satiate the, the thirst of the world. To quench our thirst. And to give to those who believe a life-giving river flowing through your veins. And how do the many respond we've seen? Some kind of believe. Some want to throw him in jail. We need to be asking ourselves this morning, who do we think this Jesus really is? Whose birth is this that we really celebrate this time of year? And we must take him on his terms, on who he says he is, not just our man-made opinions about him. Our passage has seen very different responses to him, right? Responses, I think, that can somewhat be summarized by C.S. Lewis's words. He says this, Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He didn't produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Everybody has an opinion on Jesus. Everybody thinks they have him figured out. Everybody thinks they know who he is. But Jesus, he tells us who he is. The one sent, sent by the Father. Who has come so that we might drink and never be thirsty again. The one who says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so there, we find an invitation to all of us this morning. Now, maybe there's some here you, you've never believed. You've never embraced him. You find yourself thirsty this morning. Have you gone to all sorts of places in this world looking to be filled up and you find that it never, never quite satisfies? And that he satisfies less and less. The invitation to you, the invitation from our Savior is come and drink. Believe in him. And for the many in here who've believed in him, maybe for a day, maybe for 20 years, 40 years, 50, 80 years, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you also find yourself at times thirsty. Because you keep running to all those other sources. You, you, you know the real source. But you keep running everywhere else. To you too, Jesus says. Come and drink. Come and drink and, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is our provision. Jesus is our provider. Do you believe him? Do you believe that he can truly quench 
your thirst can quench the dehydration of our world and of your heart. Let's pray. Oh, Father, oh, how we thank you that, that you have sent your Son, that he has come forth from you to come to tell us the truth of his Father and has come to give everything of himself, his life, and his death, and his resurrection, come give it all to his people, to all who would believe in him. Oh, Father, would you help us to come this day, to come to our Savior, not looking to all of the other places that we so often run to, but help us to truly look to Jesus. And might you fill us up. Oh, Father, fill us up through the work of your Son and the application of that work by your Spirit. We pray this all in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.